This episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun has been called the greatest store in the universe by Raygun, saying they are the most important clothing store Earth has seen since the early Mesozoic era. They specialize in t-shirts and modesty and are completely made and produced in the USA. If you breathe oxygen, you'll love it. Head over to raygunsit.com to check out your next t-shirt purchase. Welcome to Parent-Driven Development. I'm JC, and today I am here with my friend Chris. Hey, I'm Chris, and we are joined by Darcy Lockman. Darcy is a former journalist turned clinical psychologist and is the author of All the Rage, Mother, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. Did I get, did I get the whole title right? You did. Good, good. You live in New York, right? I do. I live in Queens, actually. Great. We wanted to talk today a little bit about the rage and kind of uh, some of this myth of partnership. Great. You want to give us a little, a quick little background? Sure. Yeah. So my husband and I met in grad school and got married at, toward the end of it and started having a family. And we were certainly, you know, both going to work once we had kids. And it went without saying for both of us that we would be equally sharing the workload of children. And of course, before you have kids, you have no idea what that means. And we didn't talk about any of it, but you know, we were both going to work. We were both going to deal with the kids all that stuff. And it really surprised me when our first daughter was born, how much of it actually ended up falling on me. Again, even though we were equal breadwinners and workers, it just seemed to kind of like go that way. And neither of us could quite say why. And because I had at that time, a small child, I was meeting lots of people at preschool, and all the mothers would kind of talk this way. And it was all working parents, dual career couples. And the moms would kind of like, you know, initially, like kind of quietly complain a little bit about it. And then it got a little ramped up as time went on. And a lot of us had second kids. And I just kept asking myself sort of every day, like, why are we living this way? Because sort of no matter what we did, it never seemed to go any other way, I would get angry, and my husband would get defensive, and nothing ever changed. So this question stayed with me, why are we living like this in the year it was, you know, like, the 10s at this point, the 2010s. And I finally thought, you know, I really want to dig into this question. I had been a journalist, I was a psychologist, I felt like I could look at the research, I could interview people. It, It just really was this thing that stuck with me and I wanted an answer. So I went looking for one. And the result of that was the book that I eventually wrote, All the Rage. I I feel, well, one, there's a little bit of irony since our other panelists that normally join us, the the moms in the group weren't able to make it because during this quarantine time, they were too busy to join. Whereas (laughs) these two dudes... Uh, yeah, I was surprised to see two men here today, but now I get it. <laughs> yeah, and, and we didn't really realize that this was how it was going to be, and things worked out, and people had to tag out last minute because that's what happens when it's a bunch of parents. <laughs> and that irony is just kind of staggering right now. <laughs> I was laughing at that, too, uh, before our call. I'm like, oh, great, it's going to be the two dudes. and. Uh, <laughs> I'm really glad to be interviewed by men. I think a lot of people, if, if you haven't read the book, it sounds as if it's going to be a male bashing book. And it's not that at all. In fact, the book is really about the impact of patriarchy on all of us. And that makes it sound so dry and academic, which I don't think it is. But, you know, it really what couples who have read it together have told me is that 
it really allows them to have a new kind of dialogue because neither of them feels responsibility for their predicament anymore, right? It's not because the mother is a martyr. It's not because the father is a lazy jerk. It's because we grow up in these ways that really put emphasis on girls thinking about other people and other people's needs all the time and boys thinking about their own sort of like ambitions and comforts, right? So we grow up, yeah. we, we grow up in a society which we will call patriarchy, that just that reinforces this stuff from day one, no matter how egalitarian our homes might be or how liberal our communities might be. So so anyway, it's it's certainly not I don't blame dads or moms, because people can kind of land on either. But we look at the book looks at the whole system and looking at that system allows couples to think differently about how they might want to live in it once they have children. You make a great point there. And the, I think the word patriarchy is a little bit loaded these days. And some people might find it like, oh, I don't want to read that or whatever. It's probably going to be bashing, like you mentioned. But it does seem to be a cultural thing. And and like you said, boys are like, hey, you should, you know, they, they do grow up thinking of how are they going to become the the provider or, or that kind of sense. At least how I grew up, right, was, hey, my responsibility when I grew up will be to provide for my family. And I think a lot of girls grow up that way, too. But somewhere along the way, it kind of shifts and maybe they're they're kind of pushed away from that and so they kind of like you said it's it's kind of a, a cultural thing where they end up being like that in my in my marriage i know that i was definitely not doing as much as i probably could have around the house i probably still don't to be honest who are we kidding and my wife my wife was did stay home for 13 years and before going back to school getting a, a nursing degree and then becoming a, a nurse and working full-time but she still carries a lot of the load in in the home. And that is definitely something that can be improved in my household. And I probably should read that book with her. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. it would be, it'd be beneficial. Right. For both. Yeah. So you're, you're, of course, clearly not alone. What the time use data shows and time use data is collected by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And it consistently shows that in dual, dual earner couples, women carry about 65% of the childcare work and men about 35%. And even um, there, there's actually no earnings arrangement that reaches parity. So even when wives are the sole breadwinner winners because their husbands are out of work, uh, they still do more of the childcare work. This is what the, there's just tons of family studies research on this. So you're hardly alone, JC, when, when you say that. And, you know, in the last 50 years, women have obviously moved into the workforce in greater numbers. So women have been encouraged to be more like men, right, in terms of becoming earners and workers. But because we kind of devalue the feminine in our society, men have never been encouraged to become more like women, right? We tell our girls, go out, be tough, you can do anything you want to be. We don't tell our boys, play with dolls, pretend to be a nurse, right? For example, like your wife. So the caretaking professions are also skewed female. But there, there is, there, again, there's, there's like tons of interesting research on what is called communality or agency. And girls are raised to be communal, to think about other people. And boys are raised to be agentic, to think about themselves. And while women report more feelings of agency over the decades, if you compare cohorts, which people have done, you don't see men reporting more communality over the decades. So the ways that we've changed have not kept pace with each other. Seems like it's been a one-way shift. It's like here is additional things you can do on top of everything you were already doing. 
Right, exactly. So women, like we get to work now, which, you know, I'm glad I like having a career, but no one said to men, hey, you get to, right, you, you get to plan the meals for, for dinner and the weekend and keep on top of the homework and make sure you're on the WhatsApp for the second grade class, right? This isn't stuff that men have been so encouraged to do. <laughs> it's not that they don't do it, because some of course do, but it's not, it's not in the water in the same way. Right, right. I would agree with that. I have seen some videos online of, you know, the, the dads don't even know the kids' birthdays and that kind of stuff. And that just baffles my mind. Like, how can you not know that? And when a dad doesn't, it's kind of funny. We laugh about it. But if a mom didn't, you know, she'd be burned at the stake, right? That's a bad mom. Right, right. And that's, and that's my whole point. It's like, how could you not know? I mean, you, you're, you're also responsible for, for these kinds of, kinds of things. And I think, well, the small victories, I'll take them. I know my kids' birthdays. You know, I remember when they are. I remember things like that. But so with my wife working as a nurse, so she's, she's still working. And everybody being home, there's, we have four kids. There's, my three teenage boys are adult size. They're six feet or, or, or so or more. And there's a lot of food that is consumed in this home. Oh, God. More than I, more than I thought. And uh, what we what we started doing, especially when my wife was was not going to be around much, was she started instituting uh, everybody takes a turn making dinner. And that's actually worked out really well. And now the kids feel that responsibility of, hey, it's my turn to do dinner tonight or whatever, and, and kind of take that burden off. I think that's one of the biggest time sinks i think is cooking you know making sure food is available and so that's that's one thing one of my older kids he's been bored out of his mind he's in he's a freshman in college but he's home and he's taken to cleaning the house doing the laundry mowing the lawn pruning the trees just anything to fill the hours really i mean he's been trying to remodel parts of the house and stuff so i'm like let's not be too ambitious but you know, it's, it's been welcome for sure so yeah. Dar- Darcy, right. is there anything yeah. similar to that that you would take, you know, like for your kids to guide or influence how they approach this dynamic? Yeah. So I have two daughters. They're 10 and 7. And they see me, you know, they see how we work things and they see me being the one who's like kind of most active in terms of like taking care of them and thinking about their needs, which is not to belittle my husband's contributions because he's great. but right? What, what do they see in their home? And of course, they know that that I wrote this book. So, the, you know, whatever kids see in their homes, though, they're, they're really influenced by the outside world. You know, there, there are studies that do find that early on, there's a big impact in terms of like, who kids see taking care of babies. So with older siblings, boys in more traditional homes will show less interest in than girls in babies, whereas boys raised in more egalitarian homes feel freer to be as interested in the baby as, as their father is. So there's like this identification with the same-sex parent. You know, kids are always trying to like figure out their social world and what their place in it is. There's a researcher who calls kids gender detectives, right? They're always looking for clues as to what group they belong in, and they want to be accepted by that group. And it influences kids in a lot of ways. I mean, there are play studies where they'll look at the toys that boys and girls choose when in the company of peers or when alone. So as probably won't surprise you, kids will choose like toys of either gender when they're playing alone and they think no one is watching them. There's a researcher behind the, you know, one-way glass. And when they're playing with groups of peers, they'll choose like the correct toys for their gender. That's very interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's so much influence from early on culturally telling us what to be and what we will be rewarded for. 
And people who study gender will talk about, you know, boys being policed for gender much more strictly and much earlier. So like early on, boys learn that they shouldn't be sissies, right? Shouldn't cry, shouldn't show their feelings. This is around six or seven or eight. This is when boys start to really get that. Girls are on like a slightly longer gender leash. It's not until they're like 11, 12, 13 that, you know, they learn to shut up, right? Girls learn to say, I don't know. Boys learn to say, I don't care. And boys learn it earlier than girls. And interestingly, Um, Boys are most prone to depression around that time, six, seven, eight. And girls are most prone to depression around entering adolescence. And in speculating why that is so, some people theorize it's because of these like gender categories that they suddenly have to fit themselves into if they want to be kind of widely accepted, right? So in terms of like what we teach our kids at home, I mean, when my younger daughter was in preschool, they were learning about money. So she, she was playing with coins. And she would say to me, mommy, who's this? Who's this? Who's this? And of course, it's all these guys, right? Like, what do you learn? What do you internalize when you're growing up and you see the people on on the news who are talking and making decisions are men? Like, you really learn that men are more important. How do you not learn that, even if that's not what's what's in your home? So I think, you know, there's so much of all this around us. It's just really hard, right? I mean, I think individual couples can decide they want to live differently. But I think first we have to realize how ingrained in us it is. You know, as I was like contemplating all this and writing this book, I found myself really noticing how far out of my way I would go to make sure that my husband was not inconvenienced. So if there was like something that had to be done for the kids and he like got a look on his face about having to take care of it, I I would feel like compelled to be like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll just do it. It was like I had this idea that he should not be inconvenienced. I should. And a lot of women I spoke to would kind of articulate something similar. So I think we really, you know, the more we know about this, the more we can catch ourselves again and do things differently. There was a guy who wrote a great op-ed for the New York Times while I was writing. And he said, you know, to be honest, I feel like I should be thanked when I cook dinner or do the dishes. And he was saying, you know, in relation to his wife, like he felt like he deserved some special praise when he did these things because they weren't, you know, his to do. And he was being really honest. And I think men can like interrogate their kind of internalized sexism too, not because they're bad people, but because how could we not be that way, right? Right, and I I think that that dynamic is really tricky to navigate. And I know that it's in the course of the my relationship with my wife, it's it's ebbed and flowed in in different ways, especially when it comes to things of taking care of the family and the house and cooking dinner and that sort of thing. And some places where we are very stereotypical traditional uh, you know she really really likes caring for young kids and will and you know will go out of her way to help with nurseries and other things like that and and other mothers and i do you know fix stuff and yard work that sort of thing but on the flip side i also do you know like lots of cooking and cleaning whereas she'll do the taxes uh, yeah and so it's you know it's kind of all weird but it's also like we do kind of still fit into our categories and luckily she's very good about making sure to talk about this bluntly in front of the kids and you know admittedly it still even makes me uncomfortable i'm like oh no we should we shouldn't talk about that <laughs> oh, really why call me out in front of the kids it's not appropriate well and it's not that it's inappropriate it is uh, it is often things that just are uncomfortable or you know i or intellectually i know it's it's not inappropriate but you know 
some pre-built in or or long time built in prejudice is coming out and it'll be things like you know my daughter is a teenager and we're talking about menstrual cycle and it's just like oh that's gross and and my wife will, will just be like you know give me the the worst glare and be like no it's not <laughs> like, oh my god um, right. and, you know and it's it's those sorts of things where you know you you can make the poop joke and then everyone just kind of giggles but then you know it, when talking about things that you know my daughter has to live through yeah. no matter right. what like oh we can't we're gonna we're gonna call that gross <laughs> right like, those shameful if, it's, if only girls experience it those things are shameful and can't be talked about there were i can't remember what year this changed but like on television advertisers or companies weren't allowed to advertise tampons or maxi pads oh i've, heard, it was I've heard all about this yeah <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what, like, what do we learn from that? But, you know, in, so I've, I've like spoken at conferences and stuff and I've had women stand up and say, you know, we're really traditional, but it's okay with me. Am I doing something wrong? So like kind of, you know, what you're saying, Chris, like if you and your wife are both happy with whatever's going on, you know, good for you. Um, those tasks that you're talking about that are traditionally male, like the yard work and the house repairs, the car repairs. One thing that researchers will observe is those are things that can be done kind of more infrequently and less on a rigid schedule. Mm -hmm. Like you can wait an extra, if you don't feel like mowing the lawn one weekend, you can wait a week. You can't wait a week to feed your children. <laughs> The, the tasks that generally fall on women are kind of the chronic repetitive ones that have to be done on a schedule. And there's an interesting study that actually came out after my book came out that made me laugh. Because after the book came out, I, I wrote an op-ed along like alongside publication of the book for the New York Times called, and they, they title it, I would not have chosen this headline, What Good Dads Get Away With. And it was about kind of how men tend to get out of certain household tasks. But after I wrote that, piece i got a bunch of emails from men saying well i do all the yard work and i do all the care <laughs> like i got all these kind of emails it was and then there was a study that came out which looked at urban men who don't have gutters to clean who don't have yards to mow who don't have cars to repair and it looked to see if they made up for the time they didn't spend doing those things by doing more traditionally female tasks inside the home guess what the answer was Nope, they, they got less to do. They probably even did less. <laughs> so yeah. even when relieved of those, you know, kind of burdensome tasks, men don't compensate by taking over more at home. So I thought that was an interesting research finding in light of all those emails that I got. One problem that I have seen just in, in observing my wife and, and her experiences is dealing with other moms that have the more traditional role, stay-at-home mom that, that, that don't work and they just, you know, care for their kids. And there is definitely some frustration with the assumptions or even just the way they will phrase and talk about certain things that, that come out of the biases that are that are like ingrained in people that are, are living that experience. And it sounds like the research you have done for your book w would be something to well arm, you know, working moms for, for dealing with situations similar to that. So the book focuses on dual earner couples okay. only. Because I, I feel I my feeling was if you and your spouse have agreed that someone is in charge of the home and someone is in charge of the breadwinning, you're in a different situation. Gotcha. So, and I don't mean to say that the person who's in charge of the home is not going to still be frustrated by lack of participation in the home from their partner, because certainly sure. women are. 
but the the book I'm just looked at dual earner couples because those are the ones in which the assumption would be that there would be equality in terms of taking on the childcare and all that goes along with that. You know, the remembering and the planning, the mental load, as well as the actual physical execution of the work. Though I will say, you know, in interviewing, I interviewed 50 mothers for the for the book, 50 earning mothers, and they would observe, like, you know. My friends who are, who are like, they would say, I know some people who are stay at home dads. And as soon as the, the wife who's the earner gets home from work, she totally takes over so he can have a break. And she kind of observed her friends who were full-time stay at home moms didn't get that. So it was like still the assumptions and the thinking about what the other person's experience was, was greater on one side than the other. That's, that's really interesting. That dynamic for us, I was the breadwinner for 13 years, and then that shifted. But I can honestly say that it did not shift at home. That you know the the dynamic and and the the load balance, it's better now. But it's yeah. it's something that took some time to adjust to, and and for me to honestly be less selfish and contribute more. Yeah. So you mean when I started working and earning money, she was still doing the bulk of the stuff at home. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And the kids, the kids were a little bit older and they, they can help and they can do certain chores and, and whatnot. But, you know, as the years have gone by, it's, I think it's improved our, our balance, but I would not hesitate to say that she still does, you know, the bulk of it. This um, is really hard to make. The thing is, how does, how do you get good at something? How do you get good at a new, a new skill? You get good at a new skill by practice, right? Practicing, right. So, and doing it, just doing know, it. Yeah, like when, when things it's, it's really a snowball effect. I mean, I know for us, once I started to really be frustrated and couldn't do it anymore with my husband was after our second daughter came along. But by that time, I knew all the other parents. I knew the preschool routine. I knew when the bags had to be packed and the laundry had to be sent and the parent-teacher conferences had to happen. Like I was just so much more plugged in, having gotten like a three-year start on him on paying attention to everything. So the problem really becomes sort of the, the unequal experience equals the unequal capability. And then when the other parent can't catch up, and especially when it's a typical gendered distribution, it, it ends up, people end up saying, well, you're just better at this. And there really is no better at this. And the book has a whole biology section about like how child rearing and taking care of children is not an innate capability that people have. It's really a learn something that is learned. So it's hard to learn. And I, I assume, JC, you were really behind in the learning curve because you had, you know, you guys had divided things up a certain way. And, and interestingly, I, yes. you know, the research shows right, exactly. So in the countries where, in the Norwegian countries where fathers get use it or lose it paternity leave, meaning there are certain not there's a certain amount of paid maternity leave given to women and a certain amount of paid paternity leave given to men and it's non-transferable so if the dads don't take it the moms can't use it there are countries where anyone in the family can take it in those situations the women usually do so in countries i think it's sweden and norway where they wanted more gender equity it was more of a value they made this use it or lose it time for the fathers because before that fathers weren't taking it so much because of the pressures of the workplace and society and all this stuff but once dad started taking it because it was more or less mandated if you wanted that paid time with your kid 
the research they did, and they went like out five years, they found the dads who had taken solo paternity leave after their wives went back to work, were still doing like two more hours of household labor per week than men who never took it. So you really see how that kind of early learning experience pays off in a more participatory male partner. So it's pretty interesting. But I do think it's about like just developing comfort with like thinking about the needs of your kid and carrying them out. Yeah. So I'm, I'm the oldest of five kids and there was a big gap between kid number three and four growing up. So I got to learn to change diapers for my two younger, younger siblings and, you know, help care for them when I was 11 and 12. And as they were growing up as I, through my teenage years. So I was not afraid of, you know, taking care of a kid or, or whatever. It was the really the rest of the admin stuff around it. And, and like you said, you know, that, that recurring thing, and it's just an organization thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is just planning and sticking to the, sticking to the the program. Right. Absolutely. So mothers call it, or, you know, people call it the mental load, kind of knowing what has to be done, who, who's going to need what planning ahead. And there are interesting studies with couples about who is responsible for the mental load. So what social science researchers have found is that women are also like, I don't know, two times out of three, the one who's in charge of the mental load. And that even when a man says he is in charge of some of the remembering tasks, it'll often be like he's reminding his wife of something she said she would do for him. So like the guy will say, like the researcher will say, tell me about the last time you remembered something for your household. And the, the male research subject will say, well, I reminded my wife, she said she was going to buy me a jacket. So there, I found all this interesting empirical work on the mental load, which supports this thing that mothers are often struggling with the most, which is, you know, their husbands say, I'm happy to do anything you ask. And there isn't much acknowledgement of the fact that being the one who's, who's like keeping track of what needs to be asked of others is also a lot of work. That's a great point. That, I mean, I've seen that, I've lived that, right? And, and that's very true. One thing I think that has helped us to kind of distribute this mental load, at least offload it a little bit. It's just to keep an online calendar that's shared between the two and that we can definitely, and and we've kind of, it's become a habit when she gets home, if she's not just exhausted, then we'll review kind of a little bit what has to happen today. And now that all the kids are home and the schedules are all shot and everything is shifting all the time there's 500 emails to go through it seems like every day from the the three different schools our kids go to yeah that that's kind of increased that load mental load has increased and so we definitely plug into our calendars a little bit more and just make sure that the kids are going to be able to do what they need to do and we know when because it's not no longer like hey it's a routine it's not a routine anymore so that's kind of added to that stress i think but yeah you're very you're very it's, it's very true. My wife feels guilty when she's not doing something she fe- she feels she should be doing, even if she's tired or yeah. she wants to, she'd rather read a book or something, but she feels guilty about it. And I think that's something that has to be maybe unlearned too. Yeah. that, you know, it's okay to take time out for yourself. And it, there's that joke that says, you know, I told my wife I'd fix the toilet thing. And just, she doesn't have to remind me every six months. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, for reminding me all the time. You're talking about something like sitting down with a calendar that seems it works very well for couples. I mean, the people who I spoke with who were having the most success 
in you know both partners feeling satisfied with the division of labor really spend a lot of time going over nuts and bolts and who was doing what and making sure everyone felt like they were getting enough support. So there really is so much to be said for having a really ongoing conversation that involves calendars and sitting down at a table. But the, you know, the thing you bring up about your wife's guilt, there was this great study that I think really speaks to this dynamic. And they, they looked at men's and women's feelings about under-benefiting and over-benefiting in a relationship. So I think the words kind of are self-explanatory, but the under-benefitter is the one who's doing more of the work and the over-benefitter is the one who's kind of relaxing while the other partner does more of the work. And, you know, predictably being either the under-benefitter or the over-benefitter is uncomfortable for everyone. So no matter which end of it you're on, it's a bit uncomfortable. But Women are more comfortable with underbenefiting, and men are more comfortable with overbenefiting. So, like the guilt that you're talking about, I think is kind of in there. I, I would agree, absolutely. And I know that for me, I've I have less of a hard time saying, you know what, I'm gonna do what I want to do right now because I need that break. Right. And where she's like, yeah, I would like to, but this still needs to be done or that still needs to be done. And it's not anything for her. It's for the family or it's for somebody else or whatever. Or I've got 30 other things I need to do before I can get to what I want to do. I'm like, that is just absurd to me, you know, in in a sense, like how you're never going to be happy if you can't cut it off at some point. I I totally like that. We'll We'll be around the house on a Saturday and my husband is, you know, inevitably lying on our bed, playing on his phone. And I'll be like, but there's a whole thing of laundry sitting here that needs to be put away and nothing is like prepared for dinner yet. And he'll be like, come lay down with me. And I'll be like, what? <laughs> you know, and right there is like, the, it's, it's such a big dynamic, yes. This idea that everyone has to be taken care of before you can relax, I think is again, like part of being raised really to be very sensitive to the needs of others or, and you know, not as much. True. <laughs> True. And, and, and it has a lot, I think, to do with how you were raised, but and, and the examples around you growing up, but it's something that can be changed. And like you said, you can learn a new skill. So it's definitely a new behavior can be can be learned as well and and, you know, become the norm. I think with this pandemic, it's interesting because since we're all at home, I think the invisible workload of motherhood is more visible. You know, when when this all started and I was kind of running around, which calms me. So I was like, happy to be doing it. My husband was like, I- I'm going to do some of this stuff. You need, you need to stop. And it was interesting because it was stuff that he might not have been home to see me doing typically. So I was kind of wondering if there's some like for individual couples, some progress to be made around this now, because the invisible work is, is again, so, so much less invisible. And part of the issue that couples have is that women get angry and men are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I think that's harder to maintain right now, possibly. Yeah. And I've definitely seen that. Although most of the time that's in the context of, you know, we owe the teachers so much because they were doing so good at, you know, teaching and taking care of the children unless unless in the oh wait my partner is not holding up their end of the deal (laughs) yeah because the child care is often offloaded on the schools right and i mean one of the things that i've talked about um 
was that how lucky I am that my kids are at, you know, are as old as they are while, while we're at oh, while yeah. we're going to this quarantine. Like they are much yeah. more autonomous. I can, you know, yell down the stairs to go, go start dinner and they will. But yeah, uh, if, if we still had, you know, preschoolers or, or, you know, younger elementary age kids, like I, this would be a totally different experience. <laughs> I remember, so during Hurricane Sandy, my oldest, who's now 10, was three, and I was pregnant with my second, and preschool closed because of Hurricane Sandy for a few days in New York, and the parents, we all had three-year-olds, we were all like, oh my God, we cannot survive one more day with the schools being closed. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I look back on that, and I'm like, yeah, you know, if I had a three-year-old now, like, it's so much, it's so nice to have kids who you don't have to have your eye on at all times, who can get themselves a drink of water. Right, right. Right. It's yeah. I, I know some people who have little kids right now. I feel really bad for I, them. And we have a number of panelists that couldn't make it today. <laughs> they have to keep the kids entertained. You know that that kind of deal. <laughs> it's that so hard to do. TV as is. Yeah, for us, we're kind of like, where are our kids? <laughs> They're still asleep. It's two o'clock. Why are they still asleep? Oh God. Oh, count your, that's great. Count your blessings. <laughs> yeah, I think they've all grown an inch since this started, too. They've been sleeping so much and just eating and sleeping, it seems like. so. I guess I'm that's- fairly sure. My daughter is a, a gymnast, and so she, she trains a lot. And they'll always hit growth spurts when they stop training. So I'm pretty sure she's going to come out of this thing two inches taller. <laughs> oh, wow. Should we move on to the, the genius fail? Yeah. Well, th- this was a great conversation, though. I, this was fun. I, I and- very much appreciate it, yes. Oh, me too. Thank you, guys. And how well it's articulated and definitely something I need, I look forward to reading more oh, about. I hope you'll so. enjoy it. I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's a good read in addition to having a lot of studies. So I think it's not too dry, but you let me know what you think. Well, and, and sure. immediately I, I'm thinking of at least two other couples that would be very similar situation to mine. And I'm like, this, this would be a great, a great thing to go through. We, we need to do our book club for this. <laughs> you totally should. You know, I wrote the book that I wish I had had. When I became a parent, right? Because I, I want it, you know, I, I think it, it would have really helped me. <laughs> so I really, I'm very passionate about people at the beginning of this child rearing journey, reading it as, as well as others, of course, because I think you can really change course with a little bit of knowledge. But that was certainly my idea when I wrote it. Like, what would have helped me when I, you know, when I had my first? Yeah, that's that's an awesome perspective to have for it. Thank you. It's not because you wouldn't be like, I don't, I don't want to be preachy to myself, you know, but I, this is like, hey, this is what you should know. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. How things work. Yeah. And how they can work. How they're going to go if you don't pay some attention to this. Yes. That's that's awesome. All right. So so genius fell moments. So this is the part of the podcast where we switch over and, and talk about things that might have been uh, genius parenting moments in the past week or two or a fail. You know, something we did as parents that maybe we fell on our, on our faces with. So I guess I'll go ahead and start. And I think really the, with this whole pandemic thing going on and everybody being home, the, the biggest thing has been just keeping the, the kids from getting to, you know, out of sorts and stuff. And, and one of the, the things that we've done is just giving, giving them things to do and tasks that they can stay busy with. And I think that's, what's really helped as much as can be helped. They still miss their friends and they miss their social lives. And since they're all a little bit older, but I think that's one of the things that, that's helped having that structure. And they've always had structure on their lives. So still keeping some structure, like I said, they still sleep till two or noon or whenever, but 
having some structure and some things to do and some responsibilities has helped with that. So I think that's one thing. And one of the things is cooking dinner, taking turns. And so they've been learning how to cook as well. So there's a, a plus side to that is they'll come out of this knowing how to cook more than just, you know, spaghetti or some eggs. So that's definitely a, a plus there. Yeah, that's great. I'll go because mine is cooking related and it seems like a nice segue. We had trying to, to limit the times we go to the grocery store. So we're going through the freezer and making our way through things there. And we had some steaks that had been in there for I don't know how long, but we decided that we could we'll run them through the food processor and make uh, ground beef. And then we can make tacos because you put a lot of taco seasoning in. It doesn't matter if the steaks were freezer burned. So we did that. And it was great. And the kids were excited because they like tacos. And this was great until I went to get a, I was getting like a casserole type glass casserole dish out of the the cabinet. And I had to pick one, the smaller one up and set it down. And I took the big one out and then I was setting it on the counter next to the stove and the cabinets right above it. And I turned to to, uh, do something else. And the smaller one fell out of the, the cabinet landed on top of another like a drinking glass and just shattered glass everywhere and but this was right next to the stove and now i'm sitting there going what are the chances that broken glass got into the pan with the taco meat Uh, and i sat and looked at it for a long time and i was like i don't see any i don't see any and then eventually i found a tiny little speck of like yep I've, i've proven that there's broken glass in there and so i had to throw out you know, a couple of pounds worth at least of taco meat that was ready to go. It was all done. <laughs> and then everybody was sad while we started started dinner over. <laughs> that, that's, do you want me to give one? Yeah, if you, if you have one, that'd be great. I, do. I have one. I have, a, I have a great one. When the pandemic started, I thought, how am I going to keep my kids happy? Because they're going to be so sad. My older daughter loves school. She loves being with her friends. So I'm not, I don't typically let them eat like a ton of junk food. Probably most people do not, but I'm, they think I'm like the sugar police. So I thought, Ooh, I will make this a sugar vacation. So they have been having Nutella banana milkshakes with whipped cream for breakfast. I sent my husband to target to get a bunch of junk food. Cause I can't even buy that stuff and he came home with all this stuff so they have an afternoon snack every day of like mini oreos or whatever the stuff he bought was and then i also made sure we had something for dessert in the house probably featuring whipped cream maybe like pudding or something oh and i'm also uh, usually i'll make them chocolate chip pancakes only on the weekends during the week if they have pancakes no chocolate chips so i've just been plying <laughs> junk food and they're so happy it just so easily makes them happy it's wonderful so it's probably both a parenting fail and a genius move <laughs> i i'm just smiling thinking about the, this whole idea it sounds amazing <laughs> Yeah, it's same. I've mean, got a big smile too, thinking like, oh, wow. Kids getting cranky? Here's some whipped cream. <laughs> They're just going to remember this as the time when they were allowed to eat as much sugar as they wanted. Banana Nutella milkshakes. Man. Oh, they're actually good. It's just. I, I know. I, I, this sounds amazing to me. <laughs> milk and Nutella. Yeah, and some cocoa nibs if you have them, though I've run out. <laughs> That's fun. All right. All right. 
So thanks so much for joining us on the Parent Driven Development Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions you'd like us to chat about, please email us at panel at parentdrivendevelopment.com, or you can find us on Twitter at parentdrivendev. If you like what you hear and you want to support us on Patreon, you can find us on patreon.com slash parentdrivendev, and please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Thank you very much for joining us. Where can people find you on the internet, Darcy? I'm on Twitter at Darcy underscore Lachman. And you can buy the book, All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership, which was published by HarperCollins, wherever books are sold. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.